0: I'm talking about really stressed out, where it seems like every major aspect of your life is just going nuts. And in front of you are so many things that call, that demand for your attention to the point where you just don't know what to do. So many things one could do to put out all the different fires on all the different sides, so many things we could do. So many things we could focus our attention on. So many urgent things to deal with. In some of those situations, even the best of leaders get paralyzed. Losing track of not only all that could be done, but the main thing that needs to be done. Today we read of a church under stress in fact, under attack and in different ways. And in an effort to strengthen that particular church and the church's pastor in light of such difficulty, Paul the Apostle lays out for this younger pastor, Timothy, he lays out for him the way forward, what to do and what to focus his attention on despite everything that could call for his attention. And Paul the Apostle simply exhorts him, stay on task. Fulfill your ministry and be about the gospel. Stay on task, fulfill your ministry and be about the gospel. Though this was written to Timothy, keep in mind also it was written for the entire church that Timothy was pastoring in the city of Ephesus, which is modern day Turkey. Let me invite you to turn with me to our passage today found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 14 to 19 can be found on page 995 in those black Bibles in front of you. If you're using one of those, maybe you might be able to find one underneath the chairs on those pew racks or the chair racks. Obviously, we are back in the letter of 2 Timothy. So when I'm preaching, uh, as I'll be preaching obviously today and then for the next two weeks, we're in 2 Timothy. And then when Jason preaches, he is walking us through the gospel of Luke. And so we're hitting different books, different genres, different testaments as all of God's word is certainly important for our faith necessary for our faith and 2 Timothy is a letter was a letter written by Paul the apostle to his son in the faith Timothy Paul is in Rome he's writing all the way to Timothy who is in Ephesus a coastal city in modern day Turkey and this letter 2 Timothy is, in, is actually quite unique it's unique in the sense that it, it ends up being Paul's very last letter included in the bible Paul's very last letter included in the Bible, and quite possibly his very last letter, period. If you read the letter, I encourage you to go ahead and do that this afternoon. If you read the letter, you'll see that at the time of writing, he was imprisoned for Jesus Christ, bound with chains. If you look there at chapter 2, verse 9. In the eyes of the Roman emperor Nero and the others in, in authority, he was judged already to be a criminal, not because he wanted to lead a revolution against Nero and the empire, but because he submitted himself to the Lord and Savior. The mid-60s AD, which is when he wrote, was a very tumultuous time, devastating for the early church, the early Christians, as they were under persecution. And persecution was heavy in the city of Rome as Nero was executing scores of Christians. This is actually what would happen to Paul in just possibly in a year or two after he wrote this letter. If you look there in 4, 6, and 8, chapter 4, 6, and 8, he knew that his execution was near. He had already, past tense, finished the race. He was already, using the language of sacrifice, being poured out like a drink offering. And so what would be his last words? to young Timothy, writing what would be his last will and testament, he inks this letter to Timothy, sends it off to his son in the faith, the Apostle Paul's last words as we know it. This letter is personal. Paul remembers departing from Timothy, Timothy and his tears as Paul had to set sail and head on somewhere else. We know that from verse from chapter 1. And so Paul encourages him that despite the challenges you see going on, You need not give in to fear or timidity because in Christ there is power in his spirit and strength in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul encourages Timothy to fulfill his ministry in the gifting that God has given you. Guard the gospel that God has entrusted to you. Pass it on, if you look there in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Pass it on even at the cost of suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I'll go ahead and read. Let's go ahead and read, starting from the beginning of chapter 2. Look there at chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. For the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And here's our passage today. Remind them of these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. <clears throat> For the rest of our time here, we're going to look at the setting that Paul writes this letter into. That's going to be like half of our time. Because it actually sets up what, he, what Paul's going to cover from our section into chapter 4. Where he moves from this personal encouragement and then he steers towards addressing Paul, or sorry, addressing Timothy's call to minister the gospel in light of the false teachers. So we're going to set the setting here for at least half of the time, and then we're going to move to what it looks like for Timothy to be about his task of preaching the gospel. From our passage, again, as I mentioned earlier, all the way into chapter 4, Paul gets more specific into Timothy's task and his mission as a pastor, especially, once again, in light of the challenges that he was facing with the false teachers and false teaching. When you consider the setting that Timothy was in, you can see how complex the situation is. It is a complex situation. For any pastor in Timothy's situation, right, they were experiencing the external stressors, right? They got external pressures from the outside. you got the emperor persecuting Christians. You got the kingdom of man persecuting Christ's people. Right? So, so imagine being in that situation. You have to deal with your own fears and the fears of all of the flock because they experienced these external pressures. There were people, uh, there were people who certainly wanted to kill them simply because they were Christians. But it's not only external pressures that they have to deal with, they got to deal with these internal pressures and stressors. So imagine being in the church, right? There are people who were in the church who are wandering away from Christ. They're turning from Christian truth and orthodoxy, and instead they are embracing, they are proposing, they're propagating falsehood. So what do you have to deal with in that situation? Like, put yourself in that situation. You have to deal with the false teachers. You have to, according to the Word, it says that we are to rebuke them. We are to teach them with the Word. You also have to then correct the false teaching. You've got to teach the truth to everybody so that they know. You've got to point it out. Of course, you also have to deal with those who are tempted to believe falsehood. I know some of you guys are in that situation. You are around family members who are used to believing falsehood. They've adopted falsehood, and you have to teach them the truth. Of course, you've got to navigate all of those different relationships, whether with the false teachers or with those who are tempted to believe false teaching you got to navigate all those relationships in a way that honors Jesus Christ, that protects His honor, who He is, His truth, but in a way, too, that loves those who even teach against Jesus. And you have to do so, too, to, to the flock. You have to do so in a way that protects the sheep. Those who might be tempted to believe the falsehoods. You have to be loving. You have to be patient. Again, you don't need to be a pastor to put yourself in this general general situation and know what the pressures are like there. You lived under a government that was hostile to Christians where your friends are dying for the faith, being imprisoned for the faith. Some of you guys even met some of these people over the summertime on our mission trip. You can imagine if there were false teachers around you and your friends and your family are being affected, drawn in to such falsehoods. Think about the stressors. That's right, chapter 2. And maybe even we are wrestling with the fact that we ourselves are flustered. Flustered from the outside, flustered from within, right? What in the world is the way forward? With so many different stressors, what's the way forward, the way to protect the church and all who follow Jesus Christ? So with that in your mind, like what is the way forward? That's their stressful situation. With that in mind, let's look more about these false teachers here. They're still thinking about setting. Still thinking about the setting here. Um, let's look more closely at the false teachers and the false teaching. Look at verse 17. We see uh, very clearly, at least a little bit, though clearly, we see a little bit about what these people are doing. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, Philetus who have, it says, they're swerved from the truth, saying, so here's their teaching, that the resurrection has already happened. That's their teaching, right? They taught somehow that that the resurrection had already happened. So they believe in a Jesus. They believe in a resurrection. It's just not according to the truth. Not according to what, who Jesus is and what he actually accomplished. Of course, the implication is that there is no final resurrection, right? They already believe in a resurrection, so... An implication is that there is no final resurrection. Now, now of course, in terms of the resurrection has already happened, that's what it says, the resurrection has already happened. Of course, we know that. that, That's true, according to the Bible. Christ did, in fact, get up from the dead. We know that from the gospel accounts. We know that from the rest of Scripture. We also know that those who are in him have been raised spiritually. We've been seated with him in the heavenly places, according to the book of Ephesians. We know this teaching, too, is plain it's evident from Romans chapter 6. Those who are united to Jesus, we die with him in his death, and we are raised with him in his resurrection to new life spiritually. It's even clear in our letter there in in, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 8. We look there. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Right, so it's it's clear. Resurrection has, in fact, already happened. But it seems that Hymenaeus and Philetus dispensed with final bodily resurrection. So it appears that they are restricting the resurrection to only the spiritual. Only the spiritual, perhaps, for Jesus, for us, or for Christian, The view probably stems from the position that the material stuff of the world, like the flesh, like, these are real examples, like marriage or sex in marriage, and even certain foods were somehow bad. Right? The stuff of the world is bad. We can talk more about about, about uh, eventually what kind of philosophy this became and under what kind of names and stuff like that. But basically, just think material stuff, bad, right? Um, whether it be bodies or sex and marriage and even certain foods. Now, Paul sought to correct this teaching in his earlier letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, he rebukes those who forbid marriage, who say that certain foods are bad, even though God had created everything good. So he's rebuking them. They're wrong. God has created everything good. God even created sex within marriage to be enjoyed and experienced as a blessing. But it appears that the issues in First Timothy blossom. Before it had to deal with, you know, sex and marriage and certain foods, the stuff of the flesh is bad. But it seems to have blossomed now at the time when Timothy is writing here and applied to the physical resurrection. Not only were the issues present in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, but, but also the people were too. I want you to turn over to 1 Timothy. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And look who's named there. Let's actually look at First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. That's what he used to do. Now now look at what others have done. By rejecting this, that is the faith and a good conscience according to it, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are who? Hymenaeus. Same guy in Second Timothy. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So you see, the same people are still there. They're still present. They're still causing trouble. They're still teaching false doctrine, still upsetting the faith of some. He had already, Hymenaeus, had already rejected true Christianity. He was disrupting the church, and it seems he was disciplined. You get that language there, of Paul handing him over to Satan. Think of the realm of Satan that is not the church He's excommunicating him or something like that or disciplining him out of the church because he has rejected true Christianity. But not only has he rejected true Christianity by second, by the time of second Timothy, now he is teaching against Christianity. He is teaching against Christianity and in such a way that cut right to the heart of the gospel. Again, maybe the wrong view that the material stuff of the body was bad it was eventually applied to the bodily resurrection of Jesus and all of his followers. Saying that it's already that it's already happened spiritually, it seems. But friends, the Bible states very clearly that on account of Christ's bodily resurrection, there is in fact great hope for the Christian. And if you cut off that part of the gospel, friends, there goes the Christian's hope. It is part and, parcel, part and parcel of the gospel that is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is good news that Jesus Christ actually got up from the dead. We know that in his resurrection, Christ defeated the power and the tyranny of sin as sin led to death, spiritual and physical. My friends, in Christ, in his death and his resurrection, Christians now know life, spiritual and one day physical. We know that it is on account of the spirit that raised Jesus to life. Is what it says in the book of Romans. That that spirit will also give life to your mortal bodies. Right? How many times have you guys wrestled with sin in the flesh, in your bodies? Your bodies do something that you know you don't want, your, your own will even. Chooses, you choose to do something in bodily, right, in your bodies, Even though you know you don't want to do that. You wrestle, you get discouraged, Christians. You don't want it to be that way. If our only hope is spiritual, right? Okay, so spiritually, I know and have this general idea that Jesus saves me spiritually, but yet I still do this thing in my body, even though I fight, even though we grow in sanctification. You see, if you just remove the actual physical bodily resurrection, what guarantee do we have that Christ will deliver us? Some of you guys might feel that way, wrestling with sin, wanting your body, bodies to change, the way you think, what you do, your very will. Or you want them to change at a greater pace. Friends, the Bible says that on account of Christ's resurrection, on account of God's plan with the material creation that he himself has made and made good in the very beginning, now that sin has come into the world, everything has gone downward, there will come a day when everything will be made new. And so in Romans chapter 8, we have this bold, audacious, awesome hope in the face of the fallen world that Christ will make all things new, that there will one day be a new creation, that even our very bodies will be made anew after the one who has already been made anew. We have a real hope in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection and that the very physical stuff that we experience life in will one day do what God intended it to do and do it perfectly. Worship Christ perfectly when we see him in glory face to face. That is part of the hope of this life. As our bodies are headed downward, our minds even, biologically are headed downward. So friends, the hope here is not just spiritual, though certainly spiritual. It's also physical. In this very letter, we can see the very real hope that Christ wins for us through his very resurrection. You look there at, uh, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 10, it says here, Christ abolished death, a result of sin. And what does he do? He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Certainly spiritually, one day we'll know eternal life, spiritually and bodily. You look at 2.8, and you see the hope that comes from Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Verse 11, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And that's a real hope. These are the real benefits that come through Jesus Christ and his gospel. It's the real hope that Paul holds out here and encourages Timothy in diligence to Jesus Christ. So friends, to deny a promise of God, the resurrection, to deny the promise of God, chops away at the very real hope in the gospel. Uh, Thinking back about uh, if we were in this situation, for even the most thick-skinned of pastors, I'm sure this situation was to some degree troubling. Hymenaeus, he was already disciplined from the church, but here he is in 2 Timothy, not too sure how many months or exactly how many years passed by between the first letter and the second Timothy, but here Hymenaeus is causing even more problems and he simply will not stop. I don't know if you've had to deal with false teaching in your church in the past or in your families, because there certainly is a lot to deal with. And whether in your church or your family, it is always a big deal. Some of you guys, in terms of false teaching, you come face to face with something of the prosperity gospel. We know, friends, that this is a big deal to teach them the truth. For pastors, if the false teaching is being taught in the church, right, again, you have to deal with those who teach it. You've got to do that in love and in patience and with understanding, ready to rebuke and reprove. We have to, at the same time, care for those who are tempted to follow the false teaching. And even if you are not a pastor, if one of your family members is tempted to believe some false teaching, you have to care for them according to the word. You have to protect them. So it is with Timothy supposed to protect the entire flock because what are they doing? You look there at chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. 5 and 6, these false teachers having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That, that's what marks them. Avoid such people. For among them are those who, look, they creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. That's what they're doing. They're in that context, it seems. They're preying on them, probably for their own carnal uh, sinfulness. And so they're called to protect. This is a big deal. It's going to worry the most godly of us. I mean, think of all that could have your attention. Think of all that could have your attention. In order to address this false teaching, you may feel the need to what? Master the false teaching. Some of you guys are evangelizing, even right now, to those who are who believe falsehoods, those who believe that Jesus is not the God Man, those who reject the Trinity, for example. Right? You might feel, in order to help them and genuinely love them, you got to master the false teaching. Or, in order to care for the false teachers whom you love, you know they they are your those you care for. You want to get them to repent of their error. And then, in order to care for your loved ones, you 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 have to care for them. Tempted to go astray, we have to somehow instill hope in them we have to get them to stop watching bad teaching on like for example tbn an effort also to protect the flock we might be tempted to worry about everything again that could happen with the false teachers are they going to stop preying on people you got to worry about all these different things all that could be but friends look at what paul tells timothy to concern himself with look at what paul tells timothy to concern himself with verse 15. This is basically like the anchor passage of our text today. He says there, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul exhorts Timothy here to focus on his God-given task. In light of everything that could be, focus on your God-given task. Okay, we looked at setting. Now we're going to look at Paul calling Timothy to focus on his task. Here are some sub points here. Point number one, focus on your task as a servant of God. Focus on your task as a servant of God. Here we have Timothy's number one priority. Again, in light of all that could happen, all that he could be stressed out about, all the things that call for your energies, Paul says, focus on your task as a servant of God. This is really helpful realignment, isn't it? We see Paul's emphasis on Timothy and Timothy's call, do your best to present yourself. Paul says, concern yourself with your own God-given role. I find this actually incredibly useful. If you think about your own situations, your counseling situations, I'm sure you're helping people out. Um, Think about the people you're trying to be of spiritual benefit to. Think maybe too about the false teaching that you're trying to squash in your own family. Think too about all the different feelings that are going around to those that you minister to, right? How are they gonna feel about me as I minister the truth to them? You can call them out and all this stuff. You know, we could be consumed and overwhelmed with all that we cannot control. Everything you cannot control, that's oftentimes what we're consumed about. What the false teachers teach, right? We actually can't control that, right? You, you can't control that. Maybe the lies that they might spread about true Christians? You can't control that. Where, where, And then think about the where, the where of where the false teachers are spreading their lies, right? Maybe they set up table at the corner at the uh, market square and they're heralding their lies against Christianity. Where some, maybe some of our own people hear these types of lies. You can't control that. And then think about, for maybe those of you who might fear man, think about too, uh, what are they going to think of me? What are they going to think about me as I call them out and say that they are wrong? And that they're actually, if they continue to teach that, they're setting themselves against the one and only true king. We have our former friends who were in the church. Think of Hymenaeus. He was in the church, but now is outside of the church. We have former friends who are speaking against us. You can't control that. Then, of course, there's concern for your own church members, your own family members, maybe. Maybe these false teachers are encouraging our own members away from the truth. And we are to bring people, right? That's part of the task. We are to help people turn from their falsehoods and to repent and believe in Jesus again, right? But but you can't get people, make people, to repent of their sins. What can Timothy do then? What can Timothy do? Well, friends, here he said, Paul tells them, look, you can do what God has called you to do. You can work on doing your best. Make every effort, he says, to present yourself. What does it say? Look there in verse 15. To God. As God's workmen. I find that really helpful. I think sometimes we find this kind of counterintuitive, right? How often are we tempted to think that the church's success, your own friend's spiritual health, your spouse's spiritual health, your children's spiritual warfare, or welfare their future depends finally on us on our abilities and on our knowledge what a useful dose of medicine here to be reminded to fix our eyes not finally on ourselves not finally on those that we're trying to help not on how other people might see us but to fix our eyes on god and the fact that we are his servants and that he will, in fact, see us through, and all of his people through. As Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I find this to be a huge relief. False teachers, false teaching, it might stress us out. might catch us by surprise, friends, but not God. Jesus knew that they would come in and sneak their way into the church. Wolves wearing sheep's clothing. He warned us about it. This stuff never catches God off guard. He's completely aware that they are going to do what they are going to do. But this is exactly why we must do what God has called us to do. Not what we in our human wisdom think is wise, but what God has prepared for us to do. He knows what's going on in your life, in your friend's life that you're trying to help. He is aware of maybe the false teaching going on around you. And you know what? He has prepared. Therefore, he has prepared the church and equipped us for our success. For the Ephesians church, it was Timothy. God had saved Timothy in chapter one, it says. God had called Timothy to a holy calling. God had gifted Timothy. God was strengthening Timothy in the power of the spirit, the spirit of Christ. God had given Timothy this task of preaching the word of truth. And now Timothy was to apply himself in the strength of Jesus to make every effort to present himself a workman approved who has stood the task test and given himself over to God unashamed. Why unashamed? Because he's faithful to God. Friends, we too are to focus on our God-given task, just as Timothy is. This brings us to point number two. In light of all the stressors, external, internal, Timothy is to focus on on his task. Specifically for him as a pastor, he is to focus on the task of rightly handling the word of truth. Look there again in verse 15, our anchor passage here. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. False teachers have words. They got words of falsehoods. They got words of lies. They got words that they quarrel over. They got words that spread like gangrene, it says there, like a disease. But Timothy, in contrast to the false leaders, he has God's word. He has the word of truth. That is the word of the gospel, as it alone is able to make wise unto salvation. So you look there in 2 Timothy 3.15. You see there, or let's look at 14. He says, but as for you, Timothy... Continue in what you have learned and firmly believe knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is why he is to guard the good deposit entrusted to him. That is the gospel. This is why his job when it comes to leadership development, according to Second 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, he is to train up other men who will guard the good deposit and pass it along to others as well. It's why Timothy is to preach the word in all seasons, according to chapter 4. Because it is what makes us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It saves. It leads people into godliness. It builds up the church. But the false teachers, look at their words again. Like in verse 18, the false teachers are happy to swerve away from the church, from the truth. They swerve or they deviate from the truth. Not only that, but they miss the mark and on purpose. Look at 18, right? Who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. You can imagine sitting underneath teaching that shoots wide from the mark, swerving from the truth. Right? They got the bullseye, but they shoot it here and on purpose. Imagine, friends, sitting underneath that kind of teaching. Where regularly they are aim, they aim off center on purpose, right? Everybody eventually will believe that. Yeah, that's actually what it looks like to hit the bullseye. And soon enough, you're you've lost the gospel. It's gone because the false teachers don't care to hit the truth. The people never end up learning the truth. They never end up learning what the standard of biblical teaching is. And so sitting under falsehood, they, look there in 2.14, they are led to ruin. All because of the false teachers. They twist the truth, and the truth is lost in the ears of the hearers. But God's word makes us wise unto salvation, both in saving us by the power of the Spirit, but then also helping us live accordingly. So, friends, if you are visiting with us for the first time, this is why this church gives itself to preaching the word of God, preaching the word of truth, the word of God that is the gospel. This is us, what goes on right here, this is us trying to cut straight the word, to rightly handle the word. So we want to be ultra clear on teaching God's word and holding out the one and only true gospel, the good news, every single Sunday. That Christ came to make right what sinful man put wrong. And Christ did this all by God's design, all according to God's love, right? So where men rebelled against their one creator, God, where they had ruined their relationship, where we we had hardened our very own hearts, Christ came to bring sinners back into union with Christ, back into union with him. He came to restore our relationship with God. And so God sees our plight, sees us and has compassion upon us in his mercy, sends Jesus Christ, the eternal son, who came on a mission. Christ took on flesh, he lived the perfect life, and delivers sinners who repent of their sins and believe. So where man deserved the judgment for sin, Christ willingly, according to God's love, removed that judgment that was upon us by taking it upon himself. He was our substitute who bore the wrath that we deserve. Where we deserved to die the sinner's death, Christ instead was crucified for all of his people and then to secure his people' new life, spiritual and physical, he rose from the dead, proving that payment was complete and God's wrath and judgment was no more. It was satisfied. And now, friends, as the word says, all who call upon the name of the Lord, all who turn from their sin and believe on him will, in fact, be saved. In summary, that is the message of the gospel, the message of the word, of truth. That exactly is why he is to handle it rightly. That's that's actually an engineering term, by the way, to rightly handle. It it has to do with cutting straight the word of truth. Like if you were responsible to lay down a highway or a pathway, you Caltrans guys are super excited now. Timothy here is to lay down a straight path of the word of God so that everybody around him knows clearly what it is, the path to salvation. So everybody on that path can walk after Timothy as he heralds the gospel, the gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. If you're visiting again, you see what's at stake here in this gospel? You see why he wants, them, he wants Timothy to lay down that path over and over and over again, rightly handling the word of God. It's nothing less than salvation from God in Jesus Christ. In a very real Jesus who lived, In a very real Jesus who died and was laid in the grave? In a real Jesus who three days later got up from the grave, who was raised from the dead, showing that payment was made so that all who call upon the name of the Lord, including you, could be saved, would be saved, forgiven of your sin, brought into right relationship with God, adopted into His family, where you too can know Him as Father. That is the truth. Real Jesus who lived, who died, and was raised from the grave. Regarding Timothy's task of rightly handling the word of truth. Of course, this doesn't only apply to Timothy. An application, an application here is that it applies to all who teach in the church. It applies to all who teach in the church. You look there in verse 14. I think here we see this implication when you draw the connection, right? He says, remind them. Who is the them? The them, I think specifically, is in 2-2. If you look in 2-2, it's those faithful men. Remind them. The elders right now, we are looking for faithful men. We talk regularly about leadership development. We're looking for men who can teach the word. We're looking for women who can teach the word. We regularly think about this. Walking through the church directly, who can teach the word and handle the word of God rightly, disciple other people. He says, remind them, specifically those faithful men that he's raising up, but by application, it's others as well. He says there too, charge them before God not to quarrel about words like the false teachers do, which does no good. It's them, charge them. Now let me address here that phrase, quarrel about words. Let me tell you what this, what he isn't saying. He is not saying that if you, friend, get into a healthy argument, you know, where you're not singing, sinning, not singing, sinning, If you get into a loving dispute about what the Word of God actually says with someone who does not believe, he's not saying that you are in sin. You are not sin if you quarrel over words in that sense, like in the sense of just having a regular healthy uh, disagreement and argument in a way that defends the honor of God. Okay, that's not what he's saying. He's also not saying, he's also not saying, look, you Christians, like, yeah, just, just be careless about God's Word. Like, yeah, who cares? Don't ever study God's the, the meaning of God's word here. Don't ever worry about clearly stating forward to all what the word actually says. as you realize that lots of Christians throughout history have died for the sake of the word of God, whether it be translating it or interpreting it, understanding it, clearly heralding it. When Paul says, remind them not to quarrel about words, this is what he's saying. He's saying, remind those faithful men, and by implication, others, all who teach, all who disciple, etc., etc. Remind them not to be like those false teachers who quarrel over words. Let me tell you how they were quarreling over words. They were the ones who heard the plain truth of the word of God. They're the ones who heard the gospel. And then they chose to quarrel over it. They chose to reinvent the word with new and cool interpretations fitting for the worldview at the time, the cutting edge philosophy. They took the word and adapted it, watered it down so that it might look more like the culture. They twisted its meaning, changing the meaning of the word. So when Paul says, don't quarrel over the word, plain truth of the gospel, that's what he's saying. Don't quarrel over the plain truth of the gospel. The reason is that the word of God is not up for reinvention. Reimagining the gospel's meaning and its significance—that's exactly how the teachers approach it. You look there in First Timothy, um, chapter six. You see what they're doing there. If anyone uh, six three six three, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. It's almost like he is determined, determined to change the true gospel of Jesus Christ. You look there in in 2 Timothy, go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and you see this warning. And I think he's talking about Timothy's day, actually, in chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, right? They, They want to tickle themselves with something else. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They're looking for a so-called truth to justify their sinfulness and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You look also at the caricature here or the accurate description of what they're like in 3 37. 3-7, they are always learning. In other words, they're kind of moving on from one thing to the next thing, the next fad, the next fad never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Not because they don't understand it, because they don't care to keep it. That's what they're doing there. Church members, again, this encouragement should certainly be applied to pastors, but it should also be applied to you. Pastors, your pastors, have great weight upon us to cut straight the word of truth, to rightly handle it, no doubt. But friends, you realize that it is imperative that you, too, Christian, learn to rightly handle the Word of God. There are many here who in the course of your life at this church will give, for example, a Sunday evening devotional. Right? There are many of you here we are looking for more men, too. You may also lead service, as A.J. did. You may be called upon to read a scripture passage and to pray, to help the congregation learn to pray to God uh, from it as an act of worship. You may be called on to lead a small group. You may be called on to teach the children in a Sunday school class. And I certainly hope that there are many here who are currently reading the Word of God and praying with it with one another for encouragement. And in it all, friends, you realize that you need to learn to rightly handle the Word of truth. So friends, let me ask you, remember, let me ask you, how are you at cutting straight that path for yourself and those you want to help, those you want to encourage, those you love? How are you at cutting straight that path for your physical children that God has given you and placed in your care? How are you at preparing yourself and others to stand fast in the gospel in light of everything that's going on in the culture? Whether it be false teaching from those who claim to be Christians or just the secular world. Friends, you realize that learning to cut straight the path, cut straight the word, begins with knowing and studying the Bible. It begins with knowing and studying the Bible. Through knowing and studying, right, we come to know our God all the more and what He wants of us, what He has told us. We grow in relationship with Him. And the word doesn't just remain out there as if, yeah, I understand His meaning. But instead, it's supposed to be worked in here, in our hearts, because the word is so applicable. The Word of God changes our lives. The truth sanctifies us. It helps us understand everything that's going on, whether, the, whether it be topics about sexuality, whether it be topics about marriage, or whether it be topics about Jesus, the true Son of God, the God-man. The Word of God helps us know how we are to live in this world, navigating everything that's going on as we live for Jesus Christ. Right. So then as we study the Word of God, we then apply it to our lives, which is doing theology. That is what doing theology is. Now, I know for some of you guys, theology sounds like some lofty task that should remain, right, in the hands of just a select few. But friends, that is so not true. Every Christian does theology. Every Christian does theology. And it's upon us all to do it well. So when a Christian does theology, all we are learning to do is ask and answer the question, What does the whole Bible, if you're going to write this down, it might be useful, what does the whole Bible have to say today about any given topic? What does the whole Bible have to say today in 2020 about any given topic? And so we see there in that very definition, this is a common definition, we see that theology is biblical, right? What does the whole Bible have to say? Genesis or Revelation? We see also that theology is very practical. What does the Bible have to say today, in our day? In this day, we deal with things that, were very, that are very different than things a hundred years ago. They are very different. So we want to make sure that we are asking, what does the Bible have to say to us today, given our setting, given our issues, given our circumstances? And then we know, too, that it is systematic or doctrinal. Doing theology is systematic or doctrinal in that it covers certain topics. Thinking about sexuality, since I already brought it up earlier. What does the Old Bible have to say about sexuality? What does it have to say about gender? Is that good? Is that bad? Like, is it fluid? Is it not? Is it fixed? What does the Bible have to say about marriage? What does the Bible have to say about Jesus? Did he actually rise from the dead? And on and on and on. So Christians, we all do theology. We all do theology. Uh, and it is important that we learn to do it better. So, let me encourage you guys. In effort to equip one another to do theology... Have you guys ever thought about in your relationships, in your discipling relationships? Have you ever thought about picking up a systematic theology and just reading it with one another and asking the questions, "What does this have to do with my life?" So if you're sitting there reading about the attributes of God, like God's holiness and righteousness, right? You, let's say you're reading a, a, a systematic theology that's like 75 pages, which they are out there. I'll give you some if you want. Let's say you're you're not really a huge reader; you just want to dip your feet into it and then maybe move on later. If you want to pick up a 75-page one. You might not get too much application, but you're going to get, let's say, the attributes of God. What does the whole Bible say about who God is? God is holy. God is righteous. You might read three pages, and then you and your friend go on and ask the question, what does that have to do with my life? If he is holy and is going to judge everything in his holiness, as he is completely just, like, what's, what does that mean for us? How do we get that righteousness that we need to stand before God? And on and on and on. How do we encourage one another in holiness? So let me encourage you to do that. Think about grabbing a systematic theology, whether it be like a baby one, 75 pages, which they are out there, or a little bit bigger one, like a couple hundred page one, which I'm reading with somebody right now, or a big huge one, which is like over a thousand pages, regardless, wherever you are at, and encourage you to learn to do theology, which just helps you study the word better. Encourage you to encourage others in the way of salvation. And when and if you come in contact with false teaching, you will be more prepared than had you not studied the Bible and done theology. And where the false teaching disrupts the faith of some, you can be right there in that very moment, building them back up, teaching them the truth, learning, learning, helping them learn to hold on to the truth. We move on here. We've seen how Paul emphasizes the task. We've seen that the task involves rightly handling the word or cutting straight the path of the word of truth. We saw, too, that the false teachers swerve. Timothy is to lay it down straight. And then point number three here, point number three, how is Timothy to focus on this task? How is Timothy to focus on this task? Unflinchingly. Unflinchingly. Knowing that God's plan to save stands how is timothy to focus on his task unflinchingly knowing that god's plan to save the church stands i say unflinchingly once again because there are so many issues that might get us to flinch get us to pause or to back off or get flustered in the task of leadership or helping other people in christ and so we give into fear we give into fear as if success of the church or success of you know, whatever, or the health of our loved ones, spiritual health of our loved ones, dependent on ourselves or the ways in which we master the false teaching. This makes Paul's reminder here all the more important. Though the faith of some are being upset, I mean, that's very clear. You look there in verse 17, their talk will spread like gangrene, among whom are hymenes and Philetus. Who swerve from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, they are upsetting the faith of some. So, friends, if you are concerned about the church and your loved ones, notice what Paul grounds Timothy in. Notice how he roots Timothy in hope. It's not on Timothy, ultimately, it's not on his ability to break down arguments and philosophies with his own wisdom and with his own word. But friends, you see there, it is on God. Paul grounds Timothy's hope on God, not on whether the false teachers are present or not or whether they stop teaching lies or not. The hope of the church is grounded on God. Is it true that the church will face difficulty? Absolutely, yes, in this fallen world, definitely. Persecution, false teaching. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of the church stands. Why? Did you notice why, according to the passage? Because of the promise and plan of God. It's because it is God's firm foundation, built on his own sovereign grace, and his plan to make a holy people for himself. Look at the promise and the plan there. His firm foundation bears this twofold inscription. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, two quotations the lord knows those who are his and number two let everyone who names the name of the lord depart from iniquity the language of seal or inscription i find to be actually really useful and kind of and really exciting actually for this uh, particular thing you can imagine receiving something special a package or a scroll you have it in your hands and you wonder what's inside the content of the stuff inside you can imagine it let's say Just bearing the royal seal, bearing a royal seal of your king, it bears the royal inscription, a decree from the highest powers of earth. And here, you know what's in our hand, this thing that Paul is turning over for Timothy. It's like here we are examining God's church. And what is the inscription that has come from the highest of all authorities? What does the seal, the royal seal from that king, that true emperor, Over all, the king of kings, what has the king said about the contents of what is inside this thing here? First, the Lord knows who are his. And second, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. It's likely that Paul has in mind here a specific situation, a rebellion that happened against Moses in the book of Numbers, which is a fascinating story in itself. Numbers chapter 16, I encourage you to go ahead and read that later on. Even more fascinating is that Paul has that story on his mind as he writes this letter to Timothy and the church as they deal with rebellious false teachers. In the book of Numbers, Moses and the Israelites are wandering through the desert, and in chapter 16, Korah, a man named Korah, leads this rebellion against Moses and Aaron. They say, look, you guys have gone too far bringing us out into this desert. You've gone too far asserting yourselves over, uh, over us as leaders, even though God said you should. You've gone too far, saying that we are not godly. And Korah and all of those who rebelled against them were set against Moses and Aaron and God himself. And you know what happens there in Numbers chapter 16? In this event, God moves with absolute clarity to show to all of Israel who was really with him and who was against him. If Paul had this account on his mind, where these two quotes, scholars say, uh, came from, you can see how it applies. In Numbers there, back then, Korah was rebelling against Moses. In 2 Timothy, you have Hymenaeus and Philetus claiming a Christ, but rebelling against the one true Christ and leading others astray. And so Paul, perhaps knowing that Timothy felt something similar to Moses, he seeks to instill confidence and trust, saying, the Lord knows who are His. In The situation where we today might deal with false teachers or we might discipline someone for unrepentant sin, which we have in the past, uh, we don't discipline for sin, all Christian sin. We discipline for unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin, right? In that situation, we know that that's not easy. We bear the responsibility to care for all of those who are involved. The false teachers... Too, as well. We are to care for and to love. But we know at the same time that they are leading the sheep astray. They are destroying the faith of some. Friends, you realize that we might be tempted to sinful anxiety. You think of two about, let's say your spouse or your friend who seems to be wandering away from the faith. You might be tempted to sinful anxiety, ungodly worry, ungodly discouragement. But what encourages us to faithfulness? God knows who are his. God knows who are his, and he will, without a shadow of a doubt, preserve his people. You see how that then dispels fears and encourages faithfulness? We need not fret on account that God is faithful. In the face of all that we do not know, we are encouraged to faithfulness, to continue doing what God has called us to, to simply teaching and loving and ministering and rebuking with the word of God because God has it under control. He will preserve his true people. He knows and has equipped us for this. He has given us our task that we might love and call people to repent of their sin and believe and continue loving Jesus. The second inscription there, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We've seen that God knows who are His and that He will preserve them, but also those who are truly Christians, well, they are going to choose likeness. True Christians will depart from iniquity and choose godliness. It's common, right, for so many of us to try and control, right? We want to control the outcome. We want to control the lives of those who are caught in sin, those who refuse to give up sin. And I get the impulse. Again, you know, we love them. We want to see them make decisions that honor the one true and living God. But we can't control that outcome. We can't control their conviction. We can't control their choices. And so we might be tempted to give into fear or timidity maybe not say certain things that we should, but though we want to control the situation, though we might want to make them do one thing or another, the reality is those who name the name of the Lord will depart from iniquity. This too dispels fears and encourages faithfulness in your task, Christian. It is a plain fact that by the design of God, those who have the Spirit of Christ will choose Christ's likeness those whose hearts are turned, tuned to Christ's word, they're going to obey Christ's word because they love Christ. So in that moment, friend, if you're wrestling, you know your friend is maybe caught in unrepentant sin at this very moment. You know that that person is hiding something. Friends, don't give in to fear or timidity, but take up that task. You, friend, need to be faithful. Sticking to the task that God has given all of us. Teaching what God says. Telling others why He says it. Teaching those who refuse to repent that God requires it. And why He requires it. Teaching them that Christ is better than anything they have ever imagined. Faithfully rebuking those who are living in sin. And even discipling, sorry, disciplining those who refuse to repent from the church. And you're to do that knowing what? Knowing that each and every single one of those things that I just mentioned, all that falls underneath the task of the Christian, for the pastor especially, preaching the word of God, we're to know that each and every single one of those things that we are to do is God's tool. They're God's tools to move the unrepentant to repentance. If they would truly choose Jesus Christ. And if they don't, is it difficult? Yes. Is it sad? Yes. Is it heartbreaking? Yes. But they will show their true colors. As chapter 3, verse 9 says, look there. They will, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. They will not choose to depart from iniquity. They show themselves to not be of Christ. Because they don't care about Christ like this. That's why we just need to be faithful, even to those we have discipline. We want to lovingly hold out the word of God and call them to believe on Jesus Christ. That is a loving thing to do. Let me encourage you, friends. If you find yourself in that moment, stressed with all those different external pressures, internal pressures, you want to genuinely care for all of those around you, here Paul calls us, especially pastors, to stick to the word of God Stay on task and God himself will do what he has promised and what he has always planned to do, that is make a holy people for himself. In the face of of all that could be, all that demands our attention in this difficult situation, what is the solution? Paul says, stick to our task. For Timothy, it was to rightly handle the word of truth. And how was he to do that? Unflinchingly based on the promise and plan of God himself and his sovereign grace to build a church. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, indeed, we, when we look at the church, when we look at strengthening those who are around us, when we look at calling people around us to follow in the ways of Jesus and to repent of their sins and believe, well, we know that sometimes this task is certainly daunting. But Lord, we thank you that this is your church. And you have saved us. You are the one who has called us. You are the one who has given us a holy calling. You are the one who has gifted us and called us to build one another up in Jesus Christ with your word. We pray, Lord, that no matter the stressful, difficult circumstances we may be in, even as we face loved ones, perhaps, wrestling with sin, we pray, Lord, that we would cast ourselves upon you in your sovereign grace and that you would help us be faithful. That we would certainly embrace the task and that we would rely on the strength of Jesus to fulfill our very own ministry here in First Baptist Church. We pray too, Lord, for those who refuse to give up sin. God, we pray that we would never lose hope. As we know too, that you are calling a people for yourself. And even though that may not happen in our lifetime, you might call our loved ones to yourself long after we lay in the ground. oh, we know that you are faithful. Help us trust in that faithfulness and labor seeking to please you and you alone. Give us boldness. Give us unction to cut straight the word of God in all of our conversations that we have where we seek to do other people good. Help us be about the word, even in the face, especially in the face of what other people might say and the false teachings that might be out there. We pray, Lord, that First Baptist would be known from now into future generations for rightly handling the Word of God. We pray that this would be the case by Your grace. In Your name we pray.